Davies, and you're listening to the Split Tooth Podcast Network. Today, we're coming to you from the University of Oregon campus, where Animal House was filmed, for a special episode about Oregon film production history. I'm here with Katherine Wilson, the godmother of Oregon film and author of the new book about Oregon's film industry, Echoes from the Set. Joining us is U.S. Cinema Studies instructor Stephen Rust. We're going to chat a bit about the history of film in Oregon, producing Animal House in Eugene, and Catherine's experiences on a variety of sets across the state and the Pacific Northwest. But first, before we sat down, Catherine wanted to see if she could find one of the more iconic shooting locations from Animal House, a basement classroom in Fenton Hall. Um, I don't know why I'm so overcome with emotion right now. Probably because I haven't been here since that day. But this is the student court scene. And it's all been redone. Used to be flat with stairs. They've turned it into a lecture hall. Oh, my God. In Catherine's book, she writes about her life on sets from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest to Animal House to Stand By Me. She's seen legends come and go, including track star Steve Prefontaine. So I just want to start things off maybe by talking about where we just were, because you had some interesting stories, Catherine, about Taylor's. Taylor's was the closest bar to my dorm, and uh, it it was pretty wild back then. Of course, in the late 60s, there was a lot going on. it was kind of like, oh, we're going to the protest. Let's meet at Taylor's first and have a beer <laughs> in case we're in jail for three days or something, <laughs> right? And I would go to Taylor's and wait for my husband to get off work, who worked there. And uh, Steve Prefontaine would usually be there around five o'clock on a, for sure on a Friday. And uh, it was built differently. And um, we drank together it was kind of like the gang's hideout um it was really fun yeah and then later after animal house came to town uh belushi sang there i didn't know that yeah that's why they had the blues uh, burger there for quite a while which they don't have anymore i guess (laughs) i think they're trying to lose that you know image Which is, which is an interesting choice in yeah. its own right. Uh, so Oregon film history is storied and complicated, and you organize your book by different time periods, kind of going out through about a 50-year period. For those who aren't as versed in Oregon film, I'm going to address this to you, Steve, first. What are some of the early kind of milestones of Oregon film? I would say that the early milestones include um, some very early, we're talking like late 1800s, early 1900s, Edison Company style um, uh, uh, short films. And Oregon uh, in the 30s became a place where a number of film productions came. A famous movie called um, Abe Lincoln in Illinois was actually shot uh, in Oregon. Um, And a very uh, uh, famous director um, named, uh, uh, oh, I'm going to mess his name up, F.W. Murnau came to Oregon 
1926 or 7, made a film out in Eastern Oregon, and some of the students involved in that production came back to the U of O campus and filmed the very first feature-length student production um, here on, on the U of O campus. Um, in the uh, 1950s and 60s, Hollywood films would continue to come here. And then in the, the early mid to mid 70s, a um, sort of barrage of filmmakers began to uh, um, began runaway productions, which is leaving Hollywood, leaving behind the trappings of unionization and all the rules, and found Oregon a very welcoming place. And so Jack Nicholson uh, was a number, uh, among a number of filmmakers who came and sort of made Oregon a real happening place for film in the 70s. And ever since then, it's just been production after production here. Yeah. So... Catherine, you've worked on a lot of Oregon sets. You talk about so many in your book. I just want to know, how, how did you earn the nickname Godmother of Oregon Film? Oh, my gosh. Um, it actually was not a very good situation that was happening up in Portland. Uh, this film commissioner, David Wilson, was just a genius at bringing production here. But by then, all the crew was in Portland, pretty much, Um it wasn't down here in Eugene where it started in the 60s. But uh, the casting directors, there were so many casting directors moving into town to try to get in on, you know, the jobs that, uh, and there wasn't enough. So they were fighting among themselves, but then it, it escalated to um, uh, faxing production companies and telling the production companies that this casting director that was, you know, uh, an evil person or really terrible or whatever. I mean, it was awful. And somebody decided to have a big meeting to bring all the casting directors together and to work this out. Because I told them, if you keep doing that, the productions aren't going to come here anymore. And sure enough, they all stopped and there was no work. Um, so I got invited to this and the, the woman who had started the first modeling agency in Portland, her name was Carol Edeline. I was, um, one of her clients and, uh, she stood up, um, when everybody started bickering and she said, everybody, I want you to shut up and listen to Katherine Wilson because she was the first casting director here has had more jobs than any of you and she's got something to say and um, they all looked at me like I was who are you you're not from here <laughs> and I she goes um, I want you to know that she's the godmother of film of Oregon and so you need to stop all of this and listen. When she sells, tells you to not do this infighting and faxing, you know, these productions, um, she was right. You know, there's no work. And that's how I got the name was from Carol. That's a that's a great story. And also just to know that, like, you've had you've had your eyes out and like have protected Oregon film in a way like that's a, it fits. It, it does. And Catherine's legacy is one of casting people in supporting roles that are um, that represent the diversity of Oregon that represent the the real faces of real people that lived here have lived here not a, a completely fictionalized or Hollywood you know glamorized version and it's something that makes many of those films 
incredibly special and um, have become really monumental, not just in organ film, but in Hollywood history in general, right, that were made here? Well, that started because um, I was named as the, as uh, Governor Bob Straub's liaison to the set of Cuckoo's Nest. And they had a sign up on the telephone poles in downtown Salem that said, do you have a face that scares timber wolves? <laughs> they were looking for realistic extras. And back then, you know, all the Hollywood agencies were of beautiful people. And I, I always loved that Diane Arbus look, right? The, this real visceral, real you know, look and the Oregon look. And um, so I'd started a casting company with real people. And then, of course, it became the big thing. But Steve's right. It was like, it was, it just seemed the right thing to do. So in Echoes from the Set, you write about a specific voice that a lot of Oregon filmmakers and Oregon films have. I'm going to quote you here. Spirit is the je ne sais quoi that both poetic cinema and Oregon's cinematic literary voice has. What films represent this best? Well, for me, um, actually, that came from Ken Kesey when he said, um, spirit is the only currency. And he also said that without the Indian, Cuckoo's Nest would have been a um, uh, melodrama. Great stories have archetype. Great stories have a structure. And the Oregon films are not melodramatic because they have spirit. Yeah, there's a way in which in, in melodrama, in a classic melodrama, for example, setting the places where characters inhabit and the world that they interact with is typically a reflection of the psychological state of those characters, and it's often an outward projection. But in organ film, and this is true of Northwest literature as well, setting becomes a character that influences the, the lives and worlds of the people that live there, right? And that's happened in other places around the world, but you can really see it, uh, for example, in films, uh, Gus Van Sant films like My Own Private Idaho is still one of my very favorite films of his. Um, and in the work of, of animators like Bill Plimpton uh, and Will Vinton, whose work, even if not always about Oregon, has that spirit to it. Ah, that's beautiful because um, one of the Oregon authors that first was called the Faulkner of the Northwest by the Oregonian, and he has this voice, and he's very prolific. His name is Rick Steber, and I called him and told him I was writing this book, and and we were talking about landscape as character and setting. And he said, we carve on the landscape and the landscape carves on us. And I just love that because even the guys from Hollywood coming up here from New York, uh, they were so affected by the, the spirit that pervades here. And what that spirit is, is it's collaborative. That spirit is friendliness. That spirit is intellectual autonomy, uh, individ individualism. We all think for ourselves here. Um, even though we're a sheep farmer, we try not to be sheep. You know what I'm saying? So um, that also is kind of a unique spiritual imprint, I think, and the American Indian spirituality, the pioneer um, spirituality, 
and of course the incredible panorama of Oregon landscape spirituality are all prevalent. You know, I'm tribal and stories, like I think I said in the newspaper article last Sunday, you can't tell people anything. You really can't convince anybody of anything. But you can tell them stories. And one of the great storytellers was Jesus. He spoke in parables. And uh, speaking in parables is kind of, I think, what happens here. You know, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Incredible, um, incredible story that nobody but Ken Kesey could have written. All these films, Hollywood didn't want anything to do with them. You know, Kirk Douglas tried for 12 years to make Cuckoo's Nest. Um, sometimes a great notion. Uh, Paul Newman had to finance it himself. All of these sprung from Kesey's incredible book. This new kind of voice, this, in my book, I talk about the new Western, the existential Western. And in Kesey's book, he talks about McMur McMurphy walking down the street like a guy in gun smoke. Um, the incredible work that helped me with this by Leslie Fiedler, a, a critic, and uh, Northrop Fry, they, they talked about the new Western. It was a whole new way of telling story that even if they weren't from Oregon, but they shot it here, it's like that spirit pervaded the film and it ended up having that Oregon kind of watermark on it, if that makes sense. Do you have any specific stories from maybe the set of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest or uh, five, like just stories from sets you've worked on that kind of echo this watermark of like behind the scenes? You've maybe talked about some of them in the book, but just kind of like what what specific memories do you have? Well, what Cuckoo's Nest ended up doing when they didn't get a lot of people that w had faces like Timberwolves, for instance, um, later, I cast a film in Seattle where they wanted that Diane Arbus look, and um, people were with, you know, deformed faces or whatever, very shy. They really don't want to be in a movie. So they hired actual inmates. And I think I told a story about the first day I showed up, we were led into the cafeteria to wait for the crew to join us, and um, I kept going these guys came in and started sitting around me and my friend at the table. And I went, man, these are great looking extras. Well, they were actual inmates. So that tradition of, you know, that Steve was talking about that he put so succinctly that I really didn't know how to use those words. Michael Douglas and Milos Forman hired inmates and one of them flew out of a window. They had a cable on the second floor, and one of the inmates opened the window and flew out. And um, he wasn't hurt very badly, but it was quite shocking. And later, Michael Douglas went up to him and said, um, "Why are, are you okay? I mean, you know, I'm so sorry that you, you know, got hurt. And he... He said, oh, good, you're not mad at me? <laughs> and Michael said, no, you just made a great headline, though, about one flew out of the, you know, the <laughs> second floor of the cuckoo's nest. And 
it was that great sense of humor, uh, that interaction where the lowliest extra Michael Douglas treated like the most important person on the set. And when you read a traditional film history, right, that behind the scenes of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, right, even of a very famous film like that that has a documentaries made about the filming process, um, you might hear that inmates were cast, but only through a personal story like this and a personal experience do you do you understand the intentionality behind that um, from someone like Douglas? And it opens up not only more information, but also the way we might perceive and think about someone like that in a producing position um, and the choices that they were made. Like, for example, Animal House. Animal House as a movie is now, a lot of students don't want to watch it in class. They consider it to be problematic in terms of its representations of gender and race and things like that. Um, and yet when we think about it historically and think about what was possible here at the time <laughs> and what folks like Catherine um, and the film crew you know, uh, dedicated themselves to doing, reframes that just a little bit differently. Yeah, I was going to say I have a couple questions about Animal House that we can kind of get into, but I think the first is more directed towards you because I, so I remember watching the movie when I was about five or six with my grandpa and my, my dad, and I just, many of the jokes passed over my head. I was very young, but then I watched it before I came to school out here and I got more of the jokes, obviously, but it didn't like the movie as I've watched it as growing up. It hasn't felt any less relevant to me. Like I do tend to disagree with a lot of my classmates that I think it is an important movie about the college experience. And yeah, some of the jokes might not fit our values of today or kind of what like the PC culture. But I, I, I think it it's more nuanced than that. And like the stories from the set we'll talk about also are more nuanced than that. But Okay, how has PC culture come into contact with Animal House, and has the impact or relevance of the movie and its brand of comedy changed because of this contact? It's it's definitely changed the the meaning of the film, or at least the um, I mean, I, you can't change the physical film, but you can change what it means to people. One of the most obvious things about the movie is that, um, like so many college or teen centered films, it is about the pursuit of women and to sexually take advantage of as, as many women as possible in in many different situations as possible to um, to get women intoxicated in order to do that. Um, it's not only about that. And one of the things that Animal House does is it actually critiques those characters who are doing that. Um, but the way it turns those into jokes and in the way that it turns that kind of humor into something that's okay, it does trigger a lot of, and it should, right, in a, in a post-feminist um, or in a continuing feminist um, culture that we have. The other obvious thing about the Animal House um, issue is its racial politics, which are intentionally explicit in terms of representing the differences between white and black culture and white college students uh, and, and real life black adults. Um, but it does so in a way that is, is uh, could be seen today as right enhancing and, and um, reifying stereotypes that we have. What's your feeling on this, Catherine? Well, I actually went on NPR in August um, USA Today was uh, reflecting Dr. Aronson's position on it in the 
quarterly and a, a lot of a lot of people were that and it was just like Steve said you know if you were on the inside you knew that these were the guys that wrote this were a National Merit Scholar uh, a Harvard graduate and a Dartmouth grad and they wrote for National Lampoon and lampooning is a criticism how do remember when I said you can't tell anybody anything you can only tell them stories well, what they did is they were lampooning everybody. They made fun of all of us in that movie and bust some, what do you call it, denial systems. Um, on NPR, I kind of got yelled at because I took too long to talk. Mm -hmm. But I had to read this quote by Joseph Campbell. And the reason why it was really important, it was about the wild person it was about um, the pranksters it was about um, guys like Belushi and Otter and they were pranksters and actually Animal House was inspired by the merry pranksters another direct organ you know it was yeah. it really was um, it was set in 1962 because the studios wouldn't make a movie about acid hmm. back then they didn't have the way to do it very well so what we have here is um, we have archetypes. We have Bluto, who was always wearing a football jacket, who's like the big, dumb, you know, football player, the 0.0, .0 guy, right? You got the otter, the ladies' man. They just essentially, they were making fun of all of these 70s kind of things, but portraying it in a 60s movie. Um, I just finished reading about the sexuality going on in the 50s and the 60s. I had no clue. I was not old enough. <laughs> but by the 70s, it was insane. And that whole thing about, and what they did is Landis almost took it too far and then would pull back. You never see um, Pinto molest the girl. He actually has uh, his conscience, the devil and the angel wins. He doesn't molest her, right? But the the whole black thing, the, the truth was, is that in the parking lot of the Dexter Lake Club when we were filming there, I was supposed to have 90 black people. There were not even close to that here in Eugene. And we had to bust them in from Portland. And... Um, Dexter hadn't seen 45, 50 black people in downtown Dexter before, I don't think. And so it was a new cultural situation. Um, the pickup trucks were circling um, and they had guns in the back. But everybody in Dexter drives a pickup with a gun in the back. I mean, that's an Oregon ethic, right? Um, you're off the I-5 freeway, so you're going to find some of the um, organic rednecks is what I call them, right? And during lunch, you know, that was crazy enough. Otis got a death threat, but the death threat actually happened on East 11th. And uh, the cops were all over his trailer trying to find a bomb. But during that Dexter Lake shooting, I went up to um, Peter McGregor Scott, the UPM, and I said, Peter, 
um, we're going to lose half these extras. And what it was, was it was the, these beautiful black women that were going, we're not going to take this shit and we're taking our husbands with us, pardon my French, and our boyfriends with us, um, with the, you know, the pickup trucks. And he said, what should I do? I said, you need to show them respect. So you had all these white people lined up for prime rib at the catering truck, the crew and the above the liners. And you had all these extras who just happened to be black in the sack lunch line. And Peter switched them. And Belushi had a sack lunch. The producer had a sack lunch. They were soggy. They were wet. It was pouring rain. It was awful. And we never had sack lunches again. So it was a beautiful resolution um, to the situation. And we were all laughing our heads off. I mean, we thought that scene, it was a just an incredible lampoon, especially when Otis goes, well, Pinto, no, who is it? Um, Boone. Boone goes, Otis, my man. And Dwayne Jesse, the actor, looks at him like who are you right it was a flip they they were I had that happen to me in college I went my girlfriend and I used to go down and listen to Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee at the Matrix or Big Mama Thornton at the Fillmore and we decided to go to lunch at this place called Albertine's in Berkeley and we were the probably the first white women that had ever walked in there right it was just like an animal house it points up issues that need to be addressed. It, it, the story shows us um, and it tells us without preaching to us, it shows us our own foolishness, our own racism, our own sexual craziness. And it, uh, it's funny because a wild part of us inside each one of us goes that was me before I learned better oh yeah and college is like a time of learning and Animal House is the kind of the typical college movie where of course you're going to make mistakes and you're going to maybe have bad thoughts like it's it's normal for college to be I mean what do people say like 20s are you know the puberty of your your adult life where you're just like you're you know you're you're learning and Animal House I mean like I remember going in being like, oh, my college experience won't be like that. And in some ways, I, I did party a lot my freshman year. There is that kind of like, you know, everyone has a little bit of that wildness of college and Animal House makes us, crit you know, it critiques that in a way. I wanted to ask what other stories from the set of Animal House stand out to you as particularly in the spirit of Oregon film? Oh, it, the whole darn thing was, um, you know, the pioneer stock of Oregon that you used to um, mostly populate Oregon. Well, there was still a big percentage of them in the 70s. And it was like barn raising time. There, my grandfather, who was a, a third generation farmer out River Road on our 1870 family farm could smell weather. He could predict weather and he taught me weather. They hired him to predict the weather in September for November when we needed to do the parade scene and I said there's no way in November it's like Joe Blutznick the weather's down around your nose it's constantly raining and dark there's not going to be because back then the parade floats were all made out of tissue paper <laughs> and my grandfather said oh no 
the like second week in November is going to be clear and cold. There's going to be five days that you can do it. And it was 12 hours off. I don't know if it was him for sure, but I'm pretty sure it was him that took a field burner to downtown Cottage Grove and dried the street so all the shots matched. That, I mean, people just poured in to be helpful. Um, building the parade floats, being a welder, being a, you name it. It was like the whole community. It was like raising a barn. Yes, this is a thing that we want to support. How can we help? Wow. Do you have any thoughts on that, Steve? Uh, there are, I, I got to hear, um, as Catherine and then a group of students of mine started working on this documentary project that became Animal House of Blues, I've heard so many wonderful stories. A couple of my favorites are the fact that when the actors came to town, they had to get their hair cut short for, um, to, to, for the film to be set in the early 60s. And so many people in Eugene had long hair at that time that they were considered sort of outcasts and uncool and even chased out of a fraternity party um, at the time. And then another that stands out is the 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 sort of magical um, connection that happened uh, when John Belushi comes to town and he ends up meeting Ken Kesey. And the two of them uh, retreat to Kesey's house and within a relatively short time, come up with an idea for one of the most famous and funny SNL skits ever, The Killer Bees, which is a, a true moment of breaking the fourth wall when sort of all sense of like the fact that you're filming an SNL sketch, like they start talking to the audience about each other. It's just absolutely wonderful. So, um, and so Oregon that someone like Belushi would come here and of course meet Kesey and then they would make art that has that Oregon spirit all over it. I wanted to say one more thing. Belushi is quoted, um, I think in the Village Voice is saying, when I went to Eugene, Oregon, I learned that that town knew more about music than anybody in New York City. I thought that was incredible. That's I had really to I had to tell that story. That's that's a great story because um, it was an incredible time for music in Eugene back then. So to kind of move forward in the future of Oregon film, uh, Catherine, you write about Oregon film after Animal House in your book and how things kind of waxed waxed and waned in terms of work for a while. What are some of the hardships from that period? The hardships were. I kind of go into it at the end of the book. Um, I'm trying to encourage young filmmakers, but I want them to know what they're getting into. You will never know when your next paycheck is, or if there is one. Um, it's it's a, a really hard industry. It's full of a lot of egos. Um, if the tone is set for collaboration in the beginning and the only ego allowed is the stories, that works um but my children i i once lost my house on the mckenzie river and lived in a tent for six months i mean that's the reality you know i could have given up the film and um gone back to work but i wanted to be a writer at home with my kids i wanted to be home with my children and so i kept going on the story and gave up the house. So that's, and Philip and I, he's been working, we've been commuting to Portland for 47 years. I first started for Set Deck up there. Um, 
but he practically lived there on Graham because, you know, it was, I got to see him one day a week, pretty much for the last 25 years. And, you know, absence makes the heart grow fonder, but he wasn't there when his mom went to the hospital or his dad went into the hospital or you sacrifice so much. And I talk about in the book how, you know, families want to do a gathering and you tell you tell them you're going to try to make it, but you hope you can't, that you're working because there's were some really long dry spells, sometimes a year long. And, uh, but you know, it's worth it. it. If you just trust, you know, you do what, do what it takes. I moved houses for a while and restored them and flipped them. You know, it's Philip helped me. So we talked a little bit about Grimm. You just, you kind of mentioned your husband working on that. Uh, but I wanted to talk a little bit more about, um, kind of currently what's going on in Oregon, uh, for film, but, my first question is, how has the representation of Oregon changed over the years in film? How has the representation of Oregon changed? Yeah. It has changed. Um, and to no fault of any film commissioner. Um, it's just the times, right? We, we used to have a bumper sticker. Television is furniture, film is art. <laughs> but they've melded now. It's cinematic television. That's what's happening. It's, you know, and reality TV and the, just the whole, it, they're different stories. Um, but Oregon used to have a reputation for having the best film crew in the world. And Jennifer Aniston said that. And we did. We were family. We had worked together. We had helped create this industry together. As a matter of fact, uh, uh we're still really close with the original film crew of Oregon, Philip and I. But it's different now. There's all these people have moved into town since Portlandia, um, which was an IFC production, um, where it was just like Animal House, though, where a B drive in movie budget created a blockbuster. It was like Portlandia was the same. And so what we have are. We don't, the days of the big blockbuster budgets, I think, are just like everything else in our country. They're at extremes. Either it's a $2 million, $200 million Marvel comic movie, or it's a no budget, you know, TV episode. Um, so it's really hard. There's no, what they call middle scope uh, films, 30, 40 million dollars of their hard to find it's hard to get financing for so that's changed but Oregon's reputation I can't believe because of Portlandia you know Shrill is here um, uh, a pilot called Stumptown um, another film called Phoenix Oregon and my husband and I are developing one called Nimrod <laughs> about where we live in the outback um, and we actually had a pretty well-known producer and a writer from New York come to our house a couple weeks ago and it's just hilarious it's a you know about a, a moonshining um, tow truck driver and his psychotic prostitute girlfriend and 
it's just about the the very edges of the Eugene culture <laughs> where these weird people have been pushed to. Sounds like an Oregon story. <laughs> yes. The more that the industry faces this um, two-tiering where the middle disappears and we end up with the big blockbuster or as close, like people have turned shows like Grimm and Portlandia into a sense of blockbuster because they've come big. Um, and where we have lost the middle, there is incredible excitement at the low budget level. The Northwest Filmmakers Festival continues to uh, feature the work of people from all over the area. The Ashland Film Festival has grown quite a bit under the, the leadership of Richard Herskovitz. The Ben Film Festival is doing very well. Portland's own international festival. Portland has an eco film festival. Um, and so there, there's a lot of support at um, among other filmmakers and among people who love film. Um, just the fact that Eugene has not only the Bijou, but a second Bijou, like people go out of their way here to to support independent film. But on the other hand, right, Portland is a, a, a place where this hub happens, but here in Eugene, we've lost quite a bit of infrastructure. Um, when Chambers Productions closed shop and, and moved away, not only did we lose an entire locally owned television news station, but we lost a, a major studio space that was here in Eugene that was used for several international productions. And that space has gone away, and uh, it's it's it can be hard. There's not very much support for it. Eugene's like Ducktown now, and the arts are having a hard time. You know, it's Saturday Market, sure, but it's just kind of like where's that middle budget that that pays a living wage in film, and why aren't we doing that in Eugene right now? Um, I have a I have a screenplay about Chief Joseph's um, nephew that I've got twenty three years into. Yeah, and you you wrote about it in your book. Yeah, good. And Steve's read it, mm -hmm. and it is existential western. It's right up there with the uh, Oregon Cinematic Literary Voice. But producing a thirty three million dollar movie is almost impossible now. So I'm stepping back and rethinking all of that. And I had huge success with Animal House of Blues. It was on OPB. And it took OPB to number one in the nation that night, which really made me happy. I had 60,000 viewers. Um, so I'm rethinking, you know, it is cinematic television now. Um, HBO is where great stuff's being made. Netflix is making stuff. I don't know. I haven't watched it, but I hear it's great stuff. I think they, there was a Netflix show that was shot in Portland, too. I forget what it was called, but it. My husband was, worked on yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. But um, we're just so spoiled, uh, Philip and I, with working with great directors like Milos Foreman. <laughs> you talked a little bit about indie film in Oregon right now, and I wanted to hear from both of you who are some of the contemporary Oregon filmmakers making films in that poetic voice you got you wrote about? Well, Meek's Cutoff is the most incredible poetic cinema film I have 
probably ever seen. <laughs> Kelly Reichardt is just my favorite. I'm, you know, I'm just blown away by her. Uh, as a matter of fact, Sean Levy, who used to be a, a film critic for the Oregonian, the only po movie poster he has in his house is Meek's Cutoff. We're both just like to die for um, her work. Um, but, you know, compared to that, I'm not really that up to speed. Steve probably knows better than I do. This is this is also, I mean, this um, for me personally, this runs into my own career and the fact that you mentioned that that I teach Oregon cinema when in fact I actually don't get to do that here. There there isn't space. I've taught a class on Oregon cinema twice here, okay. um, but I had to create that class out of another pre-existing oh, okay. class. I and um, and it's. We don't have Richard Herskowitz. If you want to talk to somebody who is has an academic background but has transitioned really fully into the world of film festivals and what's going on, because he's able to make that his profession, he's able to stay uh, current with what's happening now. And often the rest of us, right? If I can make it to the Portland Northwest Filmmakers Festival, um, there are so many names that to to pick one in particular with the exception, I think, of Kelly Reichardt, who has um, come to, she's not an Oregonian, but has made Oregon her home for many, four now major films, all of which have a very distinctive poetic voice um, that has an Oregon stamp on them. What is it in those films that makes it so uniquely Oregon? I don't know. I don't know if um, she was previous lifetime she was a pioneer woman here or an Indian woman here she's got the voice and it's like hearing a Texas drawl versus a Oregon one or a Boston accent versus a New York one right um, she just has the patois she has that soul and she has that deep layered poetic cinema mastery down cold so it doesn't matter you know Gus Van Sant wasn't born in Oregon but my private Idaho is very Oregon Ken Kesey wasn't born in Oregon La Junta Colorado um, but somehow they answered the call to that cadence to that rhythm to that poetic voice and when they answered that call. They took it to a whole new level of a modern existential Western, the new Western that um, is reverberating still and will for the next 2,000 years, I predict, because they were the first voices of this new poetic eon. In, just to, to continue quickly the, the Reichardt thread, right? Wendy and Lucy is this just absolutely beautiful, touching story about homelessness, um, about white poverty in Oregon, um, about the the places that young people find themselves in Oregon in relationship to our mainstream culture. Meek's Cutoff is one of the most moving and beautifully shot films that is about landscape 
as much as it is about the characters, it, it is about that Eastern Oregon desert and what it does to us psychologically. And then, of course, in Night Moves, she's taking head on the issue of Oregon's very fierce environmental history and, uh, well, a, a group of uh, eco-terrorists are sort of facing, um, looking themselves in the mirror a little bit and dealing with that. So, And she's not only thinking about the landscape and filming the landscape in unique ways, but she's also even in sort of period films, hip to what's happening in Oregon culture and what kind of is driving our current conversations. Uh, and again, just one prominent figure uh, among a whole range of, of people doing this kind of work today. I, I don't know if most people know this, but the Indian that's in Meek's Cutoff, is, he's not from Oregon. He's not an Oregon Indian. But he speaks the very rare and almost going extinct lower Nez Perce dialect in the film. She wanted to save it for posterity in case it does go extinct. And it's right there in her movie. That just blew me away. That's very beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's all I have for my questions. Is there anything you guys would like to touch on that we haven't talked about? Anything you'd like to add? Any last thoughts? <laughs> There's, there's so much excitement and interest in film and filmmaking now. You can major in film at Portland State. Uh, the University of Oregon now has a declared cinema studies major. Oregon State is beginning to expand their offerings. And another um, lesser known group that I think people need to, to uh, encourage people to take notice of is the Oregon Cartoon Institute. They host an annual Oregon Film Conference every year and have been doing great work to promote Oregon film and to promote the, the study of Oregon film history, which is, is really important. Yes, and uh, Tim Williams, our new film commissioner, has been so supportive of this book. Um, he said at one point, he goes, how can we know where to go as a film community if we don't know where we've been? And I couldn't agree with him more. Um, also, the Oregon Media Production Association, if you want to be a filmmaker, get a hold of them. Join that group because how I teach young filmmakers is from the ground up, you know, being mentored one-on-one, -on -one, and there's lots of volunteer opportunities. That's how I got to be a filmmaker. I just showed up and volunteered. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, thank you guys so much for being here. I, I had a great time talking to you. Say it right now, baby. Say it.